Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hey, plant people, it's the first weekend in September. It's Labor Day weekend, and it's been wet and rainy and overall pretty good this past week. It was super chill at work this week, which was kind of unusual. Um, I'm thinking partly because of the holiday and some coworkers kind of taking some extra time off here at the end of summer, but it was also really calm upstairs at work, and I'm not really sure what was up with that, but I didn't really ask any questions. I just enjoyed the quiet day on Friday, and probably because it was such an easy day and a holiday weekend, I decided to cat out early. I mean, the sun was shining, and school wasn't quite out yet so I was like I'm leaving early I'm going to the nursery so I clocked out and headed across town to go look at plants and it was great it was wonderful I wandered around and got to check out all their happy healthy plants And I gotta say, you know, even though the garden center is right there on 2nd Street, it's on Highway 79, right as you come into Taylor, it's um, a pretty busy street. But um, at the garden center, the shop is in the front and then the plants are in the back. So back there, it's really nice and quiet in the nursery. And I just love it. It's like a nice, quiet and peaceful place and you know thanks to their efforts for keeping all their plants watered during the summer and then of course you know all these recent rains just everything at the nursery was just nice and green now I didn't have a plan when I decided to go like I wasn't going there to buy something in particular. I didn't have a specific thing in mind, but you know, it's early September and we are in a brand new planting window. I did want to go check it out and see what vegetable transplants they had and maybe pick up a few things before everyone else got the same idea this weekend and bought them all. So I beat you all to it. Um, I like having choices, so I made sure to get over there, and I'm glad I did because I found some really great plants. Plus, I saw some folks I hadn't seen in a really long time, and I also got to visit with the manager and, I don't know, just had a real pleasant and fun conversation about plants and growing things and talking about some other stuff. And I bet you he was probably pleased because I ended up buying more things than I thought I would, but it's, it's all cool. But you know, my little excursion over there, um, you know, it got me thinking, I, I can't really think of a time when I left 
the garden center feeling bad. Um, I just always leave a garden center feeling more relaxed and a little bit better about things. Nurseries and independent garden centers are really great for that. I mean, obviously they have the plants that I want to see, but also the people who work there and the ones who shop there, they want to be there. They're just like us plant people. That's awesome. And, you know, if, if you don't even have, you know, fun or mentally stimulating plant-based conversations with somebody there and you just keep to yourself, it's really nice just to be around other plant people, you know, plant curious people, even being around those people that came with the people that are really into plants, those patient and plant tolerant companion people, they're cool too. Those are my people. And I'm just going to go out there and make a pretty broad generalization and say this. I think it's really pretty difficult to be miserable at a nursery. And I can't ever recall seeing anyone just fighting in a nursery or boohoo bawling about something at the nursery. I mean, other public places for sure. I've definitely seen unhappy, crying people, maybe even me, um, <laughs> um, out in public at the grocery store, at the mall. I don't know. Maybe I'm just so distracted by the plants and I'm in a zone um, that I don't notice, or maybe I stop caring about anyone else's strife or their personal problems while they're out in public when I'm at a plant store. I don't know. Anyway, shopping at local independent nurseries is really good for the economy and it keeps tax dollars in your town and in your county. Shopping at your local places supports them. And even if you end up spending slightly more than you would at a superstore or a chain place, Overall, in the bigger picture, in the bigger scheme of things, it's really worth it. I did find a few things to buy while I was at the nursery. Um, for sure, I definitely found lots and lots of stuff I wanted to buy, but I kept it in check and I didn't go crazy. I bought two Greg's Miss Flowers and, okay, I did go crazy on the broccoli plants. I bought 10 of those. Um, I bought two hot pink pentas because they were pretty and they were also half price. And for some reason, I bought a sun gold tomato plant. I'm not sure really why. I don't know. I just did. I wanted it. So I bought it. <laughs> I bought those um, Greg's Mist Flower um, because they're great plants and I have some here at home. But I had an unfortunate incident earlier this year with my bed that has the Greg's Miss Flower. It got mowed over, not once, but twice. And then we had that really hellish summer. And it's not looking good. I'm not going to go into the details about what happened. I just have to let it go. I'm moving on. I cannot change what happened. I can only try to do something different 
um, because I know that bed is not going to recover in time to bloom and be the spectacular fall butterfly garden like it's been in the previous years. But the great thing is, is that I found these two beautiful gallon-sized pots of Greg's Miss Flower, and I'm going to put those out in my garden. And even though they won't be as, they won't have time to spread and be big, beautiful swaths of Greg's Miss Flower like I had, um, at least I'll have a few um, blossoms this year and I'll be able to attract a few of the migrating butterflies to my yard. I mean, I'm going to try. So if you love butterflies of all types and you want to attract them to your yard, go get some Greg's Miss Flower. They absolutely love these. It's a total butterfly magnet. Um, also from my garden center hall, um, were those broccoli plants. Um, I, they had two different varieties, so I bought both varieties and I got five of each of the plants. So they had Pac-Man and Green Magic. Now, even though it's not blistering hot, it's not a hundred degrees for days on end, we aren't done with the warm temperatures just yet. Because here in Taylor and our part of Central Texas, September can still be pretty toasty um, with daytime temperatures, you know, still up in the upper 80s and the low 90s. So plant selection is really important when we have warm weather. Some varieties just don't tolerate warm weather at all. Selecting the right variety is really one of the keys to success for gardening in Central Texas. Both Pac-Man and Green Magic are great for warmer temperatures and warmer climates. As far as the flavor goes, I honestly can't tell the difference between any of the broccoli varieties. I mean, to me, they all taste like broccoli. They now, the plants themselves do have different characteristics that might make them more appealing um, depending on your situation. Green Magic is more compact. The plants stay under two feet tall. But Green Magic is known for its really exceptional heat tolerance, which is really great, especially in the springtime when cool season crops will bolt when the temperatures start to rise as we as we creep into the summer bolting is when a plant send out sends out flowers and then set seeds they stop growing and they only focus on seed production for fall gardening we aren't as concerned about bolting since temperatures are cooling down but heat tolerant plants grow better when the temperatures are still warm, like it is now. And while it's going to be that way for the next six weeks or so, Pac-Man broccoli is also good for warm temperatures, but it has a, um, a cool characteristic that it puts out lots of side shoots. So you can continually harvest a long time after you harvest the main broccoli crown. I like to plant a lot of broccoli. 
Not only do I like the florets in the crown, I like the leaves. You know, just use them like you would kale. To me, they taste like broccoli. Um, just top them up, toss them in with like a stir fry, put them in a big pot with other greens like collards or mustard greens and just cook them all day until they are nice and tender. That's a delicious way to make them. Um, another favorite thing that I like to do with broccoli greens is to chop them up and put them in the bottom of a bowl and then pour some hot soup over them. They wilt down just perfectly and don't get overcooked. Broccoli leaves are pretty big, so it doesn't take a whole lot to add to a dish where broccoli florets would be. Now, that said, 10 broccoli plants is going to give me a lot of broccoli leaves. A whole lot. I don't know. I guess I was not thinking. I definitely was not thinking right. I'm feeling optimistic or something. I don't know. I wasn't really thinking about how much broccoli and broccoli leaves I'll end up with. But, you know, I did forget that my older daughters left for college not too long ago. And they're not going to be here to help me eat all this broccoli. I don't know what compelled me to buy so much, but in reality, it's really only four more plants than I usually get. So maybe it's not too crazy. Well, whatever. I can always give away any extra or, you know, I can actually freeze some. I could try doing that. Um, who knows? Well, while growing broccoli is pretty easy, they can attract some pests, in particular caterpillars. Cabbage leapers and striped cabbage worms love nibbling on all brassicas, not just cabbage. The brassica family of plants is a pretty large group. It includes broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, sprouts, radishes, the leafy greens, kale, mustard, and collards. Um, they're also called sometimes the coal crops. So when you have them planted out in your yard, you want to check on them often and get in the habit of examining them pretty regularly because these caterpillars are going to devour your brassicas. The easiest and the cheapest organic way to control them is just picking them off. Be sure to look under the leaves and all along the stems because they can hide everywhere. If you get them while they're still little, it's not a big deal. Um, for me, when they get bigger, you know, about the size of like a piece of yarn, that's when I get kind of grossed out by them. And that's when I need to go put gloves on. You can squish them with a rock or figure out another way to crush them and get them to caterpillar heaven. I just feed mine to the chickens sometimes. Um, but however you get rid of them, it does not matter to me. 
I just want you to make sure that you get rid of them because otherwise they will continue to eat up your plants. Once they find you have brassicas in your garden, there'll be more and more worms and caterpillars on your plants and they will eat and eat and eat and eat until there is nothing left. And it's so disappointing when that happens, so keep an eye out for them. Now, if picking them off and crushing them is not really your thing and you don't wanna do that, or if you feel like you have a real problem, a larger infestation, you can use a product called BT. BT is perfectly safe for humans and pets, but it is super deadly for soft body critters like caterpillars. Caterpillars will ingest it and it makes their insides kind of explode. The fancy full Latin name for BT is Bacillus thuringiensis. It's actually a bacteria and you can find it at garden centers and independent local nurseries. Just ask for BT. It's very common and it's super effective. Just mix it up according to the directions and spray it on your plants wherever you see those caterpillars or if you see their droppings. Now, if you have a plant that has some caterpillar damage, like chewed up holes on your coal crops, there is absolutely no reason why you can't still eat those foods. For sure, rinse them off just like you would if you bought them at the farmer's market or if you got them at the store. You know, tear them up, chop them up, serve them cook them, whatever, however you're going to make them, your family probably won't even notice those little nibbles. Mine never have. At least they didn't. And they won't, not unless y'all tell them. If you are looking for a natural and sustainable way to improve the soil in your garden without spending a fortune on expensive soil amendments, try planting a cover crop. Cover crops have been used in agriculture for thousands of years as a way to naturally and sustainably improve soil quality. Cover crops aren't just for large-scale farming. Backyard gardeners can plant cover crops too. Planted in the ground, in raised beds, and even in containers, cover crops keep soil bacteria healthy, add nutrients, and prevent erosion while attracting pollinators and other beneficial insects. True Leaf Market offers a great selection of cover crop seeds, including their best-selling all-purpose garden cover crop mix, which is really popular with backyard gardeners. Order online at trueleafmarket.com and be sure to use promo code PH15 to save 15% on cover crop seeds at trueleafmarket.com. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you're enjoying my show, I hope you will go over to the internet and look up blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music coming out of our little station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page and like and share it with your gardening friends 
Also, head over to where you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Plow and Host podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play pause and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and be sure to leave a review. It's really easy. Click on those stars. This helps other people that don't know about the show find it and it lets them know Plow and Host is a pretty good show. It's really important for the show's statistics, so show some support. Help out your plant friends. <laughs> okay, while I was also out at that garden center, I picked up a packet of kale seeds. Um, it's a new variety that I'm going to try this year. It's called Dazzling Blue. It's a lacinato-type kale. Um Sometimes they are also called Tuscan or Italian kale because they grow well in Italy. There are three basic types of kale. Um, all the kales out there are going to fall into one of these three categories, curly, Russian, or lacinato. Curly kale is probably what comes to mind when you think of kale, especially the bagged stuff from the grocery store. It's very frilly and ruffly, and it has thick stems and thick leaf ribs. Curly kale is kind of tough, but it's really good for making a pot of slow-cooked greens where you cook them all day, and they soften as they cook down but they don't completely fall apart. They, they still maintain a little bit of that texture. Curly kale, I gotta say, is my least favorite to grow at home since all those ruffles and the folds in the curly kale tend to have a lot of hiding spots for caterpillars and little aphids. And you really have to be diligent with your curly kale to make sure there aren't any critters hiding out in all those ruffles. Because if you miss them, if you miss even one caterpillar, the next thing you know, you will have a much larger caterpillar and a whole bunch of holes all chewed up through your kale. Now, it doesn't really hurt anything. It's not gonna make you sick, but it is really annoying. Who wants ugly kale anyway? Curly kale tends to collect dust and dirt in all those little folds and curls. Dirt and dust doesn't affect anything other than you know, your wash time. You just want to make sure that you get the leaves rinsed really well so that when you make dinner, you don't have gross, gritty kale in your mouth. Russian kale varieties are those that have smooth, flat leaves. They are mild and somewhat sweet. I mean, not sweet like fruit, but they aren't as thick or as astringent as raw, curly kale. They are usually solid green or green-gray, but there is a variety called Russian Red, and it has purple stems and purple ribs. I don't know why they're called red. I don't know. When they are so obviously purple, why did they call them red? 
I don't know who got to decide these names years and years ago, but I am totally convinced that those people were not very descriptive. But whoever named Lasonado Kale at least picked something that was more interesting and more descriptive. Lasonado comes from the word for jagged edge. Lasonado Kale grows in long sword-like blades. The leaves are dark green and they're almost black, especially when they get wet. They have a pebbled and bumpy texture and sometimes they're called dinosaur kale. Now, I don't know, I've got issues with names. I'm not really sure about this name either. When it gets kind of big, it does sort of look like a prehistoric plant, kind of cartoony looking, kind of very tropical looking. Um, it has a similar shape and size to a sago palm, if that helps you picture it. I also think it kind of is, looks like it's built like a feather duster. It kind of has that shape too. Anyway, I was also reading on the internet that that bumpy texture on the leaves is reminiscent of dinosaur skin, and I'm really not sure about that. I don't know. I can kind of see where it looks a bit reptilian, like lizard skin. So they probably didn't want to call it lizard skin kale because that sounds really disgusting and I wouldn't want to eat that. So I'm fine. Lacinato. Let's call it that. Let's call it dino kale. Lacinato kale is best for salads. Even though the leaves are bumpy, they are thinner and they're easier to eat eat raw, so they make a lovely salad. I like to also saute lacinato kale um, for a quick side dish with a little oil, some salt and pepper, a squeeze of fresh lemon juice, and some red pepper flakes, and that's um, really easy, really nutritious, and a quick side dish. Since I bought all those broccoli plants and also the new Dazzling Blue kale seeds. I'm finally getting excited about the garden again. I mean, also that cooler temperatures and the rain helps, but it's nice to have new plants. I worked in the garden the past couple nights and made room for all these new plants. I had a bed with some yellow brandywine tomatoes and I had cut them back sometime this summer um, hoping that I could coax a fall harvest and hoping that they would put on new growth and I would get a new, a second crop. But, you know, with all that extended heat, they looked pretty bad. They were looking fried. There was a little bit of new growth, but it did not look good. It, I figured it was stressed from the heat and water stress, plus also um, struggling with some spider mite damage. I was thinking, you know, I could probably work with these. I could treat them for the spider mites, clean up some more of this dead stuff, give them some fertilizer, baby them a little bit, coax them into putting on a second crop. And then 
you know, I thought that was a good idea because, you know, these yellow brandywine tomatoes were pretty tasty and they're nice and flavorful. They're a nice heirloom tomato, but they take a really long time to develop like 90 days. And that's a really long time since tomatoes prefer long, hot, sunny, warm days. 90 days from now isn't likely enough time for a second crop because 90 days from now is right around the average first frost date, which is not warm. So as much as I really hesitated and I didn't really want to because, uh, you know, I was want to take advantage of their established root system. I just went ahead and pulled them out. They look terrible. Plus I have all these brand new broccoli plants and the truth is it's a much better use of my resources and better use of the space. One thing I noticed though, after pulling them out and turning the soil to get all the roots and the weeds out, I realized that this bed of brandywine tomatoes had issues with root knot nematodes. I knew it because when I was pulling out the plants, I found clumps of roots that looked weird, really strange, swollen and lumpy and discolored all along the roots were these small bumps and these bumps are called galls. That's how you know you have plants with root knot nematodes. Root knot nematodes are tiny microscopic roundworms that live in the soil and they eat the roots of the plants. They start eating on the small, fine, tender roots. And once they are destroyed, the lumpy galls take their place. In a way, it's similar to like scar tissue. The plants respond in a protective way to that damage. Unfortunately, when these gall growths form, they affect the plant's ability to properly properly absorb water and nutrients. And that can cause problems with the upper parts of the plant. And you'll start noticing issues with above ground parts of your plants with the leaves and the stems. A lot of it has to do with timing. If you notice any developmental issues, um, you know, like what stage of growth did the nematodes find and attack your plants? If these little parasites find your plants early when you planted them and there are several of them they could seriously stunt the growth of your seedlings and they won't thrive but if the nematodes didn't find your plants until they were older and more established you know you may not even really notice that there is a problem that's what happened with me i didn't know that i had a problem with them until i pulled the plants out because They had been really good plants earlier in the summer and I got a nice crop of yellow fruits and I didn't notice any issues with stunted growth. And it wasn't until after I cut them back that I noticed 
that they were struggling. Honestly, I had assumed it was that disgusting, gross, extreme heat and, you know, the drought. You know, I also had that issue with the spire mites. I mean, the heat was miserable. Everything was struggling and dying. So that is really what I thought was going on. I didn't realize it was the nematodes under the soil. Nematodes don't move very far or very fast, which is good. Um, when you know that you have an infected plant, you just pull them up and throw them in the trash. Don't put the roots in the compost pile. The nematodes and those infected roots, they can just go to the landfill. Since they live in the soil, any that are in the soil will just continue to eat the roots. And there's going to be eggs in the soil too, so there's probably going to still be a problem unless you do something. Now, this is not just terrible news. It's not great news, but it's it's totally workable and we can work around it because we are smarter than root knot nematodes. At least most of us anyway. I hope so. So if you discover them, you have some options. You know, first and foremost, they have products that you can buy. They're synthetic chemical pesticides uh, that are specifically for killing nematodes. Um, they're not organic. This is not an option for me. It's not what I want. Um, because synthetics can be hazardous to humans and pets and wildlife and not interested. But outsmarting root knot nematodes does not have to involve any pesticides, um, organic or synthetic, because you can address issues by solarizing the beds or planting other things and rotating your crops. Solarizing the bed involves covering the soil with layers of plastic. The plastic sheeting traps soil moisture and collects heat from the sun. This insulates the soil and raises the soil temperature. You'll need to keep your soil covered for eight to 12 weeks and this should be enough time to raise the temperature and kill root knot nematodes and any eggs still living in the soil. The soil needs to heat up to at least 125 degrees to kill off the nematodes and the eggs. Solarizing is great if you also have other issues like a bunch of weeds because the high temperatures will kill any existing plants like grasses um, and weed seeds that are in the soil and laying dormant. But solarizing can also mess up your soil biology because the high temperatures can kill the good soil critters along with the bad ones. So not great, but Luckily, you can correct that problem too by amending your soil by adding lots of fresh compost. Fresh compost on a newly solarized bed will replenish the microbes while adding nutrients to the soil. Good finished compost, either from your own compost pile or a bag that you buy from the store, 
you know, it's going to have plenty of microbes in it, including larger predatory microorganisms like beneficial nematodes, ones that prey on the bad nematodes. So it's like a whole little battle in the soil sometimes. Introducing these microbes as well as some extra organic matter with a nice application of fresh compost, this is going to encourage fungi, bacteria, and all those beneficial nematodes to live in your garden and help you get rid of the harmful microorganisms. Now, another tactic that you can try to outsmart root knot nematodes is crop rotation. Some plants are just more vulnerable to root knot nematodes. So instead of planting the same thing that you planted there last time, plant something different. And next time, plant something that the root knot nematodes don't like. So if you take away their favorite foods, they're not going to want to live there and they're going to be hungry and maybe they won't survive. Nightshade crops like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, potatoes, they are very, very susceptible to root knot nematodes. Okra, corn, no, not corn, okra, cucumbers, squash, melons, carrots, and sweet potatoes are also very susceptible. If you have root knot nematodes in your beds and you really don't feel solarizing is what you need to do, you know, Try to grow something else in that bed for the next few growing seasons. That's going to help quite a bit. So grow crops that are less susceptible to root, not nematodes. Asparagus, onions, and strawberries are the least susceptible to root, not nematodes. And if you go out to the internet, you can look up um, varieties of plants that are more resistant to the root knot nematodes. So got to do a little research. But the most clever thing that you can grow are plants that have biofumigation abilities. And there are actually certain plants that you can grow that release chemicals into the soil that basically fumigate the soil and get rid of root knot nematodes. This is amazing. Um, Biofumigation is a strategy which uses plants in the brassica family to suppress certain diseases and pests, including harmful nematodes. So brassicas, the coal crops, like I mentioned earlier, broccoli, kale, cabbages, mustards, radishes, all of those, they produce chemicals called glucosinolates, which suppress the bad stuff in your soil. Glucosinolates are very pungent and sulfury smelling and tasting. It's what gives radishes their very strong flavor. And it's what makes broccoli really stinky when you cook it. When brassicas are planted and left in the ground to break down, so they die and then you work the, the dead plants into the soil, like you bury them and, or you till them into the soil, what happens is th- those plant tissues will start to de- decay and the glucosinolates 
will break down too. And when this happens, an enzyme is released and that is what causes the biofumigation effect. Marigolds are also a biofumigant um, plant, so you can also use those in your garden to naturally battle root knot nematodes. So there we go, lucky for me, something compelled me to buy all of those broccoli plants. Um, because now that is what I'm going to be planting in that bed where I had those nematodes. And after all, you know, I thought that I was buying maybe a little too much, um, but it doesn't really seem all that excessive now because it solves a problem. One, I didn't really know I had, um, but it's cheap and I get fresh broccoli. Okay, guys, I hope y'all have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next time. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.